Robert Morgan, who wrote a historical devotional called On This Day, tells of uh, a significant event that happened one January 3rd in 1747. David Brainerd was a frail and timid and sickly, depressed young man, but uh, even though he was not the kind of person that you would think would kind of, you know, undertake something very difficult, that's exactly what he did. He had a longing to reach the Indians in the wilderness of Massachusetts. And he first set out into the woods to uh, try and find some Indians uh, who at that time were pretty hostile. And, and he didn't know that they were creeping through the woods and they were getting ready to kill him when they saw crawling uh, besides him a rattlesnake, which he himself did not know was there. It raised up to strike him and then lowered itself down and slithered into the brush. And they took that as a sign from the great spirit that they shouldn't kill him. But Brainerd met with almost no success in his ministry. He went out there. He was, he really didn't know what to do. He was suffering from just exposure and defeat and cold. And uh, it was just a trial to him. Then on January 3rd, 1745, Brainerd set the entire day aside for fasting and prayer. He pleaded with God for an outpouring of spiritual power. He claimed the promise of John 7, 3. He who believes in me from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. The following year proved to be the most fruitful year of his entire ministry. Even though he was weak and even though he was depressed, he immediately led his interpreter, an alcoholic, vile man, to the Lord. And many Indians were saved and were baptized. And what he realized is that even though he was already pretty weak and frail, it wasn't until he came to the end of himself and he realized that he was unable to do in his own feeble strength, what only God could do. And he grew strong in faith and just trusted God. And that's when his ministry exploded. In his journal, he wrote in one spot, quote, here I am, send me, send me to the ends of the earth. Send me to the rough, to the savage pagans of the wilderness. Send me from all that is called comfort on earth. Send me even to death itself. If it be but in thy service, and to promote thy kingdom, end quote. And again, what this teaches us is that when we are trusting in God, then we have all of God's strength available to us. But when we trust ourselves, we can't do what only God can do. For the next three months, we're going to be taking a little break from Luke to do an exposition of Hebrews chapter 11. I know that some of you have just finished studying Hebrews and uh, others are in the very midst of it. And that's not why um, I am going to preach through this text. I've just been convicted as kind of the end of the year has come about of my own lack of faith and and just observed in others some of those same things that I'm becoming more aware of in my own life. People worrying and people fretting and people really spending a lot of effort trying to accomplish or do or lay hold of things which God has already promised. 
And so I have been kind of grieved when I find myself trusting in my resources or see other people doing it, thinking that their hope is in the government, their hope is in their bank account, their hope is in the economy or whatever. And Jeremiah's words have come to mind in Jeremiah 17, 5 and 6, where he says, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord, for he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in a stony waste in a wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. Not having faith in God is to turn away from God. It is to put yourself into a spiritual wilderness where there is no living thing. And when we as Christians talk about believing the Bible and believing God and believing Christ, and yet with our lives, we put more faith and trust in the things of this world that are passing away, it dishonors God. It's a sin. And not only does it dishonor God, it steals both blessing from us and glory from our creator. And when it comes to God honoring faith, I think Calvary Bible Church is anemic. And since I'm the one who's up front doing a lot of the teaching, I will take the lion's share of the blame and you can decide how much you want to take. But for the next three months, I'm going to take myself and you along with me behind the woodshed (laughs) to Hebrews 11. And hopefully we will get our unbelief beat out of us so that we live like we're supposed to live, like we actually believe God and his word. And I hope that um, as we go through Hebrews 11, your soul will be filled up with courage and conviction and passion for the things of God that you'll just, just ache to trust God more and the things of this world less. And I just hope and pray that, that when we get finished here, we will have enough uh, impact in our life to carry us through until death or Christ comes. And so uh, I'm just going to give you a little bit of background to Hebrews 11. Usually when I do a whole book, I spend a long time on this. I'm just going to give you some, some brief concepts. The first thing is, is we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Um, my guess is it was Apollos. Whoever it was, he was a Hebrew, a Jew. He knew the Old Testament scriptures very well and was very eloquent the book was is primarily written to believers however there are these five warning sections that are sprinkled throughout the book where the author of hebrews talking to believers stops and he talks to these fence sitters these are people who come to church but they never really have committed their life to christ they're looking but they're not committing they they don't want to go to hell but they don't want to live for christ and and they're kind of just on the fence and these fence sitters the author of Hebrews deals with in a very forceful way, sprinkled throughout the book in five different places. 
the theme of the book is the superiority of Christ. And so all the way through the book, there's kind of this polemical uh, argument, this, this, um, this argumentation and reasoning to try and convince us that Jesus is superior, the superior high priest, the superior savior, the superior sacrifice, superior than angels, than Moses, than the prophets, the new covenant. I mean, he just lays out um, in great detail why Jesus is superior and then exhorts us to live for him. And in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and following, he begins to exhort us to live by faith. In verse 22 of Hebrews 10, he he tells us to draw near with sincere heart, full of assurance of faith. And he begins to exhort in this section that we need to live by faith. And he says, you know, we need to be encouraging one another. And listen, if you shrink back, If you quit assembling, if you depart from the local body of believers and jump back into Judaism and your your sacrificial system or whatever else is out there in the world, he says there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. The only thing you have to wait forward to is a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. It is scary. You reject Jesus... You perish. And so that is the warning section. That's one of those little scary sections where having talked to believers, he's going to turn his guns on these fence sitters and says, get off the fence and believe in Christ. And then towards the end of Hebrews, he exhorts us again to be living by faith. And at the end of the chapter, it could just very well flow into chapter 12, because at the beginning of 12, he again says we need to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And the whole rest of the book, he explains different ways that we are to obey God and live by faith. And yet in between chapter 10 and chapter 12 is chapter 11, and he spends pretty much more time than anything else but Jesus in the book, and it's directly related to Jesus, to tell us how to live by faith. It is so critical. It is so important for a Christian to know how to live by faith. He spends this huge chapter giving us example after example and reasonings and and argumentations so that we would know what faith is and how to live by faith. And so for this morning, what I'm going to do is I am going to read in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32, down through 11, verse 16, so we can kind of get some context for our passage this morning. And you'll be able to see kind of the end of the warning section and the beginning of this is what faith looks like, uh, which we will be spending um, several months in. Hebrews 10:32 and following says But remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured with great conflict of sufferings partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated for you showed sympathy through the prisoners accepted joyfully the seizure of your property knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one therefore do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of god you may receive what was promised for yet in a little while he who is coming will come and will not delay but my righteous one shall live by faith and if he shrinks back my soul has no pleasure in him. 
But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the men of old gained approval. By faith, we understand the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained a testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death and he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before he was being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed, going out to a place he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for a city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive him beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man and him as good as dead at that. As many descendants as the stars of the heaven in number and innumerable as the sand that is by the seashore. All of these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth for those who say such things, make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had not if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would not have had, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to call their God, be called their God, for he has prepared a place for them. Please pray with me. Father, we just want to come before you this morning as we enter into this great chapter. We want to confess our sins of unbelief, the times when we have trusted in ourselves, our resources, our gifts, our money, our government, our health care, whatever it is, Father, when we have not trusted you fully, we have not believed your word, we have not put into place, into action, deeds which line up with what is true from your word. Make us into people of faith. Transform us by your grace. Help us to learn from Hebrews 11 to be radical in our trusting of you and your word. May our minds and our thoughts and our ambitions be focused on things only attainable by faith. May faith in your word be the compass that guides us and the engine that drives us and the bulwark that sustains us so that we are known to the world as people of faith. And Father, in all this, may you receive the glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. When I told Pastor Ed that I was going to preach through Hebrews 11, he threw back his head and laughed, as only he can, (laughs) and said, Hebrews 11 is going to open up like a huge crack in the earth, and you're going to fall in there and never come out. (laughs) 
And I, I admit, I, I am tempted to do that thing. But uh, I'm going to try and keep that from being a self-fulfilled prophecy. And uh, my goal is to preach 10 sermons from Hebrews 11, which I hope will be sufficient to inoculate us from unbelief. So from this morning, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. I just want to accomplish two things this morning. First, define faith, and secondly, explain the general purpose of faith so we know what we are talking about in the weeks to come and so that we have a general understanding of faith's importance. So first, faith defined. Look at verse 1, where the author of Hebrews, having exhorted us to live by faith in the era of shrinking back and unbelief to destruction begins with a simple definition of faith saying, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So here we have four things to consider. We have two descriptions and each of those descriptions has a qualifier. First, we are told that faith faith is the assurance. And uh, really in the Greek, there is no the, it's not the assurance. It's faith is assurance. The does not there. And what that means is, is that faith is at its substance and core assurance. The, the word literally talks about something that supports something else, like a foundation under a house. Faith is a steadfastness of mind, a, a, a resolution, a, a confidence. The word used here is a compound of two words, one which is under, hupo, under, uh, the other is stasis, to, to, to stand, to have uh, stasis, and the two are compound together to, to put under, to support under, to cause to stand under, like uh, legs under, you know, a chair, like uh, pillars under a bridge, the table under a lamp. Something that undergirds, supports something else. And faith here is described as this undergirder of our hope. And hope, as we shall see, is hope in things unseen. You know, you can see pillars under a bridge and legs under a chair. But what we want to hope in, what we want to have faith in is the unseen. Sometimes you hear those who uh, are unbelievers who... You know, we might call them sensualists because they believe in things that their senses can grasp. And uh, they kind of scoff. You know, know, I am a scientist. You can't, you can't really think that I am going to live by faith, do you? I live by what I can see. I, I live by what is measurable and what is repeatable. You, on the other hand, you Christians, you live by faith in the things that you can't even see. I just could never do that. Hmm. I think we've all heard those kind of arguments, but is it true that the sensualist, the, 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 the person who denies the legitimacy of living by faith actually doesn't live by faith? I mean, think about it. Think about it. Um, 
You know, do those who mock faith not exercise any faith in their life? You know, if we were to follow one around and, you know, he goes to bed at night and he sits on his bed. And before he sits on his bed, he thinks that bed is going to support him. Otherwise, he wouldn't do it. He would, you know, fall through and hit the floor. He has faith that his bed will support him. And he climbs under the covers thinking that his covers and his furnace is going to keep him warm during the night. He sets his alarm, having faith it will wake him up in the morning, that he will even be alive in the morning. But he doesn't know that. And when he wakes up in the morning, he may hit the button on the alarm because he has faith that if he does that, it will accomplish the turning off of the alarm. And he believes that by faith. He goes into the bathroom. He flips the light switch. Now, he's never really seen the wiring in the wall, but he believes it's there. And he's never seen the electricity in the wire in the wall, but he believes it's there. And he actually acts in faith, believing that when he flips that switch, there is going to be a certain effect that is going to take place. The light is going to go on. And when he turns the the knobs on in the shower, he can't see the water in the wall. He can't even see the pipes in the wall. And he can't see the water heater from where he's at. But he believes the water heater's working. And if he turns the knob on, eventually that hot water is going to get out and come out and he can not take a cold shower. All these things he believes by faith before acting upon them. And so he is quite the person of faith. So never let anybody shame you or mock you because everybody lives by faith. There are those who live by faith and then there are those who deny they live by faith who live by faith. And those are the only two kinds of people there are. You're driving your car home from church today and uh, you can't see your brakes, but you trust them, don't you? Yeah, you trust your life to a couple pieces of steel, a couple little springs, some fibrous discs and a quart of fluid. You put your life and I've taken brakes apart. I've done brakes and believe me, there's some fragile parts in there. And every day you're trusting your life. To fluid, a spring, a clip. That takes some faith. We're all people of faith. And you know, you there are things in our life which we never see. You know, most of you have probably not seen the footings under your house or apartment, but they're there and you're glad they're there especially if we have an earthquake. But consider that there is this worldly kind of faith and all the examples I've given you is a worldly kind of faith. Why? Because it only trusts in things that can be had by the five senses, by touch and smell and taste and feeling. Those things, it grabs onto things that are sensual, tactile, That is a earthly kind of faith. That's not what the author of Hebrews is talking about. That's the kind of faith that Thomas had. Remember Thomas in John 20, 25, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger to the place of the nails and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. That kind of faith does not 
honor God because it's not really spiritual faith at all. It's doubt. It is an attempt to say, unless I can get my five senses around something, it doesn't exist. Well, that's a problem, isn't it? If you're going to believe in God who doesn't exist in this realm. So by saying that things that you can't get your senses on don't exist is to deny the reality of God. Spiritual faith comes in two different kinds. There is a saving faith, and that's the faith that God gives the elect. And so we come to faith at a point in our life. We come to believe the gospel that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day. We, we kind of understand who we are, that we are sinners, that God is holy, that he must punish sin. And, and understanding that Christ died as a substitute for us, and that if we place our faith in him, he forgives us. And that in forgiving us, he gives us his righteousness, and then we get to be born again we are transformed by his spirit and changed and on our way to heaven when we when when we understand that we are saved so there is that initial kind of saving faith that's not what the author of hebrews is talking about in this chapter either he's talking about a different kind of faith a second kind of spiritual faith a sanctifying faith that is a faith by which we live by to please god saving faith puts the initial trust in the gospel message and ushers us into the kingdom, gives us the Holy Spirit and all the spiritual resources we need to then live a life of faith. I mean, think about it. We don't see the invisible God. We don't see Mary. We don't see Jesus. We don't see the prophets. And yet we believe that they are, that they exist. We read the word of God, we learn about his promises, and then we trust what God says in his word. And we should order our lives by what he says in his word. This is why Hebrews ten nineteen says we need to continue on, draw near to God in full assurance of faith. And then reminds us if we shrink back, he has no pleasure in him. Why? Because the righteous one lives by faith. He is always trusting in unseen spiritual realities. The righteous one lives by faith, exercises faith. Faith knows things are true. Believers are absolutely certain things are true. I mean, you talk, you know, you could say, okay, put, put, you know, one believer in the room with 10 unbelievers of whatever ilk you want and they just say okay go after him and see if you convince him we'll give you all day it's like sorry you can never convince me i know there's a god i know there's a heaven i know there's a hell i mean you don't see jesus but you believe him you trust him with your eternal soul and isn't this the very thing that Peter speaks about in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 7 through 9? He says this, listen, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable. We just, it's so tempting to, to preach a whole sermon on this. <laughs> your faith is more precious than gold, which is perishable. So it not only has value that is more than gold, it has endurance that is more than gold. 
I always like it when you read about those treasures they find in the ocean and those the gold fall, falls into the bottom of the ocean and they just pick it up and it's as shiny and bright as it was the day it fell on the ocean floor. No rust or anything. Anything about that is pretty enduring. More permanent than gold because gold is perishable even though it's tested by fire. In other words, you know, it's fireproof. Faith is even fireproof. And may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He gives God glory. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory obtaining as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You believe in something you can't even see. What's wrong with you? Do you see that? Your faith, spiritual faith, is able to grasp unseen realities and make them real. You haven't seen heaven or hell or angels or saints who have died, but you know they exist by faith. God wants you to live your life and order your life around these unseen spiritual realities. Faith enables us to make unseen realities become real and tangible and sure. You know, many of you uh, have been visited by family or went to visit family this Christmas. And uh, and what happened when that happened? Um, let's say you had some visitors coming and you're excited about it. And you go, okay, so-and-so, they're going to be here in a couple of days. Well, let's clean the house and let's buy some groceries and, and let's get some presents and wrap them. And, you know, you begin to do all these things. You're living in light of somebody you can't even see. What's wrong with you? Well, you say, well, yeah, but in that case, they eventually show up. So you're thinking, Jesus won't? He's showing up too. So just as you enjoy your family before they even arrive and you can't even see them by faith, so Christians enjoy heaven now. See Christ now. Ponder the angels now. Consider the glories of heaven now. Fear hell now. All of these things happen because we see them with the eye of faith and faith makes them real. Thomas Menton, who we will be hearing much from in our exposition of Hebrews 11 because he preached 65 sermons on Hebrews 11. And... Um, and I'm gonna. I'm trying to read all of them. I only read the first five for the, because he preached six sermons in the first two verses. So I'm a little one behind, but I'm working at staying up. Um, but these are considered some of his best work. And Manton said this: "Quote: Faith gives us right and persuades us of the truth of things promised, and hope looks after the manifestation of them in possession. Faith is the hand, and hope is the eye of the soul." Faith lays hold upon the promise and hope looks out after the things promised. Faith awakens hope and hope cherishes faith, bringing in constant support to it. End quote. He's talking about how faith here is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is assurance of things hoped for. In other words, hope is that eager anticipation, that excitement. They're coming. 
Faith is the resolution. They are coming. And so both of them work together. Manton goes on to say, quote, spiritual hope is the harbinger and forerunner of those eternal and unmixed delights which the Lord has prepared for us. Hope by necessity makes things not seen present. For Mark, it is more than supposition and conceit. Heaven in the thoughts differs very much from heaven in our hope. As much as taste does from sight or longing from looking, hope causes rejoicing, an affection proper to present possessions. Where hope is strong, it diverts the mind with the evidence of future blessed estate reserved in in the heavens. Hope by a mystery and a spiritual kind of magic fetches heaven from heaven and makes it exist in the heart of a believer, end quote. There is so much there that 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 just as you have a real anticipation for visitors who might come, so you have a real anticipation of Christ coming. You know, if you were to put presents under the tree and wrap them there, and your children would be looking at them and drooling over them, going, oh, I can't wait to open up. Why? Because they expect something in there, though they cannot see it. I mean, how do they know it's not a dirt clod or a brick? And yet they have this anticipation of things not seen. Well, we have an anticipation of heaven, of glory to come, of being sinless, of seeing angels, of seeing the saints of all the ages, of being with Christ, ruling and reigning for a thousand years. We have this hope, this anticipation of what we can't see. Look at verse 1 again. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And here the word conviction is another very choice word. It's sometimes translated evidence or conviction or certainty. The Greek word is literally a rebuke. It, and really it's a rebuke to refute an argument. It is that which is so sure that we're so confident in it just conquers all arguments. Faith is that proof by which a conviction or argument is set upon. So the debate is one. In this case, the words assurance and conviction describe one another and both of them describe faith. Faith is that absolute firm foundation and supporting element of hope. And it is an absolute, sure, unbeatable argument of things not seen. You know, the atheist is going to scoff and say, well, come on, God doesn't exist. But the Christian knows he does. And he is certain that God exists. Christians cannot be moved from what they believe. And history has shown that many of them have died torturous deaths because they were so absolutely certain in something they never saw. It's amazing. I mean, when we get into the chapter, all these died without receiving what was promised. And that's what Christians do. You can torture them, burn them at the stake, feed them to wild animals. Sorry, I'm believing in something I've never seen unto death. And gladly so. Vincent, in his word studies in the New Testament, says, quote, faith apprehends as a real fact what is not revealed to the senses. It rests on the fact, acts upon it, and is upheld by it in the face of all that seems to contradict it. 
Faith is a real seeing, end quote. The end of verse 1 seems pretty ridiculous and ludicrous and foolish to those who are sensual, unbelieving. What do you think? What the conviction of things not seen? It's about, listen, I just can't do that. Yeah, but they trust in things unseen all the time. They've never seen the electricity in their walls. But they use it all the time. They act on it. And we all know, if you were here for the Christmas concert, sometimes electricity does not work. <laughs> and you, you can ask them things like, oh, so, you actually believe the South Pole exists? You've never been there? Well, yes, but I've seen pictures. Well, how do you know that wasn't Siberia? How do you know that wasn't the North Pole? You had faith that the label on the picture was right, but that could have been my backyard in Idaho. See, they choose to believe certain things by faith, but they won't go to the spiritual. They won't go to the scriptures. They won't trust in God. That's the problem. Some says, you know, well, I've I've read and I've experienced um, through the reading of different people who've been to the South Pole that the South Pole exists and I've seen their pictures and I believe them to be true. Well, that's good. You're exercising faith in man. And man. But see, we have God. We have the witness of angels and saints. And it gets down to this. What's more foolish? To trust in this world and its things which often fail and are destined to perish. Or to trust in God who never fails. Who cannot fail. So you're telling me I'm a fool because I trust in God who never fails and you're trusting in your light switch? Well, go ahead and trust in your light switch. But I'm telling you, I'm going to trust in God. In John chapter 8, verse 56, Jesus is speaking to the Jewish leaders about Abraham, who, of course, lived 2,000 years before Jesus. And he said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. You're saying, well, wait a second here. How did Abraham see Jesus' day if he lived 2,000 years before? By faith. Abraham knew there was a promise of the Messiah. God gave it to him on multiple occasions. He knew that through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so though he didn't know when the Messiah would come, he looked to the future and said, Lord, I believe I trust in that Messiah that you have promised to send. And he looked forward 2,000 years and he saw Jesus with the eye of faith, knew the Messiah was coming, didn't know when, knew he was coming He believed and he was glad the Messiah was coming by faith. You know, you say, well, you know, did you drive here in a car? Well, yes, I got, well, where is your car? Well, it's out there in the parking lot. How do you even know the parking lot's there? 
It wasn't a couple months ago. <laughs> you see, and you say, well, well, you know, usually it's there. Well, yeah, you're right. You're right. But there will be a time when it won't be there anymore. The heavens and earth will pass away with a roar, right? The elements will melt with intense heat, Peter tells us. God is going to recreate the universe. So everything out here is temp- temporary. The world is passing away and with all of its lust. The world is passing away. And so if you stake everything on the world, you're staking your faith, your hope, your trust on that which is passing away. For certain, it's passing away. Save all the trees you want. Recycle all the bottles you want. The world is passing away. And nobody can stop it. Now, the Christian, he he believes in things that are unseen. And and there's really kind of five categories of things that are unseen. One, uh, things are unseen because they're at a physical distance. You know, you can't see them because they're too far away. The South Pole. There are also things that are unseen because they happened in the past. And you don't live in the past. You live in the present. And so you didn't see the crucifixion of Christ. Third, there are things that are unseen because they're in the future, like the second coming of Christ. Four, there are things that are unseen because they exist in a different realm, like the spiritual realm where angels exist. And five, there are things that are unseen because because of their nature, they don't have any sort of physical substance like knowledge, wisdom, facts in your head. Now, the the sensualist, he only trusts in those things his senses can grab onto. At least that's what he says. But what God wants us to do is trust in those promises in his word. And you say, now, what is the difference? Here is the difference. Because when God tells us something in his word, when he makes a promise... He is putting his character, his veracity, his truthfulness into pawn. He is basically saying, okay, here's a little promise. Now, if God doesn't fulfill that little promise, it will ungod him. He will cease to be the truthful God. He will undo his nature. He has to do it. And the only way he can redeem his character from the pawn shop, so to speak, is to fulfill the promise and if he doesn't fulfill the promise then he ceases to be god so that that way we know whenever god says something whenever promise is there whenever statement is made we can have absolute confidence and trust that it is true because the very veracity of god himself is linked to everything he says and the things of this world though of course are passing away That is why the scriptures say things like Isaiah 48, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Why? Because it's tied to his veracity. It it can't, can't perish. Joshua 21, 45, not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed, all came to pass. Or later, Solomon says in 1 Kings 8, 56, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he promised through Moses, his servant. 
Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bear and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will by word be, which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I send it. He, he has to do it. He has to do it. And that is why Jesus said in Matthew five eighteen, heaven and earth will pass away before one little period will pass away from my law. My word is not passing away. It will be finished. It will be accomplished just like I tell it. My whole character is linked to everything I say. That is why we can have absolute trust and certainty in everything the Bible says, even if it's unseen. And that is why it's foolish to trust in things God says are passing away. And the world may call us foolish for trusting in the word of God, but it's they who are the fools, not us. We're trusting in something which is absolutely reliable. They are trusting in something which is not, which is perishing, which is passing away. And you think, well, yeah, I guess, I guess you're right. You know, some of you have gone out of the parking lot and found out your car was gone. Somebody stole it. You had faith it was there. You knew it was there. You went out. It wasn't there. Well, what's that? Unreliable. It's unreliable. But if God ever makes a promise to you, it's going to come to pass. You'll never show up and go, it didn't happen. God is real. Eternity is real. Heaven and hell are real. The world is passing away. And that's why Christians are to live by faith in the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Well, the second reason we are to live by faith, and we're just going to touch on this this morning because we're going to pound it into dust in the weeks to come. Faith gains approval. Look at Hebrews 12 or Hebrews 11 two, which says for by it, that is spiritual faith, the men of old gained approval. Approval from who? From God, obviously, the judge of the living and the dead. Faith is what? finds approval with God. Unbelief does not find approval with God. And that is why Habakkuk 2, 4 quoted at the end of Hebrews 10, verse 38, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. You have to live by faith. And that's why even in in 11, um, verse 6, it says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. Impossible. I mean, think about that. You want to please God? You don't have faith. You can't please him. You don't trust him. You can't please him. There must be faith. We must have faith to be saved and we must live by faith in things that are unseen and can only be attained by understanding this word and believing. And if we begin to live our lives by things we can touch and the things of this world that are passing away and and the sins of this world and the material possessions and all those things destined to perish become the reason for our living, we're living in unbelief. Because if we really believed what the scripture said, if we really believed people were headed for hell, if we really believed that eternity was most important, we would arrange our lives to invest in those things that are coming that we know for certain from the word of God are true. 
And we want to have our cell phones on in church. A.W. Pink said, quote, Faith visualizes the unseen, giving stability to things hoped for and reality to things invisible. Faith shuts its eyes to all that is seen and opens its ears to all God has. Faith is a convictive power which overcomes carnal reasonings, carnal prejudices, carnal excuses. It enlightens the judgment, molds the heart, moves the will and reforms the life. It takes us off earthly things and worldly vanities and occupies us with spiritual and divine realities. It emboldens against discouragements, laughs, difficult resist the devil triumphs over temptations it does so because it unites the soul to god and draws strength from him thus faith is altogether a spiritual thing and so the question is so how is it that we live by faith come back 